0: Exodus, chapter 20, verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered I will come to you and bless you If you make me an altar of stone you shall not build it of hewn stones for if you wield your tool on it you profane it And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it Now these are the rules that you have you shall set before them When you buy a Hebrew slave he shall serve for 6 years And in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God. And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son... He shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar, that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death.
1: Uh, it'd be uh, great, I'm sure, if you could uh, grab a Bible, if you've uh, closed that up, and uh, look back up to Exodus chapter uh, 21 on page uh, 62 in the church bibles and while you find that uh, let me uh, ask you a, a question um, well or kind of put you in a situation I wonder if you can remember a time when you were embarrassed by your dad uh, maybe you still are but I'm, I'm thinking about one of those times when you've got some friends around and, um, and you're watching tv with them and in comes your dad doing dad jokes and dad dancing doing his best funky chicken, kind of go, oh yeah, this has got a good beat. And that was the kind of thing my dad did uh, with, with us as kids. And it was excruciating. By the way, I am also well aware, this is who I am becoming to my kids. Uh, one, of, one of the favorite or most often repeated phrases in our household is, oh dad, that is so embarrassing. Dads can be so embarrassing, can't they? And I guess that's why when we open up parts of the Old Testament, like Exodus chapter 21, many of us might feel that about our Heavenly Father and what He is commanding here. It's like your dad not knowing how a text message works. Or him still thinking that Cliff Richard is trendy. He is not, by the way, just in case you don't know that. What's here in God's Word, it just seems so out of touch. I mean, what earthly good... Uh, could it be for us to be told, uh, in, a, in one of the other chapters here, uh, what to do if your bull gets loose and runs rampage? Uh, who's the, who's the, is that a situation for anybody that they're worried about uh, to this morning? Uh, or uh, worse, why, why on earth should we not uh, boil a young goat in its mother's milk, uh, which we get in chapter 23? I mean, as if I ever would. I, I've never really found that a great temptation in life. But worse still, some of the laws here (laughs) that we read a moment ago, they're describing things that we dismissed as immoral long ago. I mean, as we heard that Bible reading, surely you must have wondered why God is legislating for slavery (laughs) uh, rather than uh, uh, seeking to get it abolished. It all seems rather embarrassing to discover this sort of thing in the Bible, doesn't it? And when we do, uh, we're tempted uh, to treat the Lord God in the same way as we did our earthly fathers when they embarrassed us by muttering uh, about him or to him when we're out in public or distancing ourselves from him and even disowning him. But the New Testament tells us that all scripture is God-breathed, all of it, every bit, and is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, folks, let's not be too hasty this morning. God wants to speak to us through this passage and equip us for every good work, even from this bit of the Bible. And I believe that as we uh, take a closer look at these laws, They will reveal a God who is not embarrassing at all, but one who we can be intensely proud of. So let me pray before we dive in here. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we always need your help to understand your word right, uh, but we need it especially so this morning. So we pray that you would give us that help right now. May you speak so that we might understand and be better equipped to live to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last time we were in the book of Exodus, a few weeks uh, ago, uh, we saw God's people gathered around Mount Sinai as as God delivered his 10 commandments. They're the headlines of God's law, if you like. But this week in chapters uh, 21 to 23, we get the small print as we see how those big principles are worked out in detail in real or potential day-to-day situations that people of God might find themselves in. So, for example, the sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. And Exodus uh, 21, verses 12 to 15 that we read in, in that section earlier on, that Andrew read to us, begin to apply that principle to situations of accidental death or intentional murder. Because you can't treat the two things the same, can you? The eighth commandment says, you shall not steal. And so Exodus 22 verses 1 to 4, which you can see over the page, there we get the detail of how to apply that principle when a thief breaks in. And it looks like a strange instruction that we get over the page in Exodus 23 verse 19 about not cooking a young goat in its mother's milk, described a practice being used by the local Canaanite people around the Israelites that they used in worship of their false god. And so clearly that's application of the first commandment where God says, have no god but me. So do you see, in the detail, the principles of the Ten Commandments are being applied in a a way that made sense for the people of God in their context, in their day. And to find a way of working our way through all this small print, I want to suggest that we, we do that by looking at three characteristics of God that are reflected in these commandments that we need to reflect in our lives today. Here's the first one God's people should reflect God's character in truth. Look at the beginning of chapter 23, over there on page 63. You shall not spread a false report, you shall not join hands with a wicked man. To be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So here uh, we've got a whole load of uh, ways in which uh, the ninth commandment is being applied, not to spread false witness. And if we were to try and bring the the language up to date a bit, we might say about verse 1, don't spread malicious gossip, folks. Or about verse 2, we might say, don't play to the crowd. Have the courage to tell the truth, even when it will not go down well in the court of public opinion, even when it might be personally costly to you to do so. And don't show favoritism. That's what we go on to in verse 3. That's a bit about... Not being partial to the poor. And of course, God's not saying, don't care for the poor. Nobody cares more for the poor than God does. But here, as always, the Bible gets exactly the right balance. The poor are not always in the right. And the rich are not always in the wrong. So we should not skew the facts to favor one group over another, especially in a lawsuit. Favoritism always leads to injustice. Injustice. And therefore, on to resentment and revenge. You see, God is a God of truth. <laughs> he, in Him, there's not, nothing false. He never lies. And therefore, we as God's people should show an unreserved commitment to the truth. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about in that, is there? There's nothing outdated or irrelevant about telling the truth. Unless, of course, it's in our inability to live up to God's standards. Which is why we talk about being economical with the truth, don't we? Or or, or white lies, or little fibs. We'd love to downgrade lying, don't we? We'd love to somehow uh, kind of sanitize it or justify it. Because we would hate (laughs) for a minute for anyone to think that we might be a liar. We'd hate to have to admit that. But lying matters to God. Because without truth, there can be no trust among us. It's because of lying that wives can't trust their husbands or husbands their wives anymore. It's because of lying, we don't trust our politicians anymore, do we? It's because of lying that we no longer uh, seal a deal with a handshake. but with an army of lawyers and, and a mountain of paperwork. In fact, on a more trivial note, it's because of lying that Every night I have to stick my nose into my children's mouths before bedtime. Because I, can, I cannot trust them to brush their teeth without some kind of uh, process or legislation. You see, the fact of lying, it taints every part of human life. And so it's a brilliant thing. It's an absolutely brilliant thing that we have a God of truth who calls on us to reflect his character and be people who do not lie. So, I wonder wonder how committed to honesty are we? Will we tell the truth no matter what? Even if it means that we have to take the blame when something goes wrong? Even if it means that, that we have to give the credit elsewhere when we're tempted to take the credit for someone else's work? Even when it might involve actually disappointing or frustrating our children? By denying them a social media account because they're still underage? God wants his people to reflect his character and be like him and commit to the truth. That's the first thing we see here. Here's the second. God's people should reflect God's character in justice. And here we get to some of the uh, nuggety bits. Have a look with me at chapter 21, verse 20, where the Lord says, when a man strikes his slave male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him And he shall pay as the judge determines. As the judges determine, sorry. But if there is harm, then he shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Well, what on earth do we do with that? It seems here we've got slavery apparently being accepted. The slave being described as someone's money or, or property. And we've, we've got here also this primitive, savage system of justice being described. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But even though these laws seem difficult to us in, in our day, we need to know that they were astonishing advance in human rights in the ancient world. Slavery has always been a fact in our fallen, sin-stained world. And in the ancient world, the conventional wisdom that was, was that a slave was the property of uh, the master or the mistress. So you could, uh, uh, no, so so something. So the slave was some, something you owned. So you could no more be charged for for beating your slave uh, than you could for beating your kitchen table. They were both your possession. But that is not how God sees it, is it? Because God understands the slave is a person. Created in his image and therefore precious and dearly loved and, and, and should be valued and protected. So according to verse 26, if a slave is injured, well they're just to be set free. Master can't just beat them around however they like. And according to verse 20, if a master beats his slave and he kills him, he is then liable to a capital offense. That's what it means for the slave to be avenged. Folks, this would have been radical, countercultural stuff in its day. Suddenly, slaves have rights. When they had none before. Suddenly, there were laws protecting a slave. Suddenly, slaves were treated not simply as property, but as people. When God's principles of justice get applied to the cultural conventions of the day, well, it turns things upside down. In this ancient culture where justice was a matter of vengeance and where might was right. It was revolutionary to be told not only that slaves have rights but, but also that, punish, that, that the punishment must fit the crime which is the eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth bit, isn't it? There should be no kind of turning a blind eye to injustice but neither should there be extracting vengeance getting, getting more than your pound of flesh so that personal vendettas and family feuds would just spiral out of control. No, justice must be proportionate at all times. So do you see? God is completely fair, totally balanced, even-handed. And his law doesn't promote slavery. It simply recognizes its reality in this fallen world and seeks to regulate it. It's kind of... Like what I do with my children when they get into a scrap. I won't name names and shame anybody, but scraps do occur. How do I handle it? Don't put a plaque up on our kitchen wall saying, thou shalt not fight, thinking that that's going to do it. You know, me just saying, I prohibit it. No, kids will be kids and they'll get into scraps. and, And when they do, I tell them to go and sort it out, to go and make peace by apologizing in the first place, seeking forgiveness, And by offering recompense, which in our household means offering sweets from your sweetie jar to the offended person. But, folks, it's kind of similar with the laws regarding slavery here. Slavery in ancient times, we need to know, was very different to the transatlantic slave trade in the 17th and 18th century. But God was still abhorred by it. It was abhorrent. Yet it was happening, and it was still going to happen because of the wickedness of human hearts so God gave laws to curtail it and provided some protection for slaves and as we read through these chapters other vulnerable uh, people who were at the mercy of the sinful desires and actions of fallen men and women like you and me you see God is a realist and so we need to be so too I mean, we read these laws and it's so easy for us to feel superior, isn't it? I mean, we've done away with slavery, haven't we? It's easy for us to take the moral high ground. But we have done no such thing. It's estimated that there are 40 million people trapped in various forms of slavery around the world today. Generating $150 billion in profit. For the traffickers. In 2017 alone there were 98 cases of human trafficking in the Northeast, 40 of which were children. And I wonder what the ancient Israelites would have made of a society that pays businessmen billions in bonuses while one in four children are in poverty. Or of a society that leaves its elderly to die in homes neglected and alone. Of a society where 49% of people say that their TV is their main source of companionship. It's easy to imagine that we're on the moral high ground, isn't it? So easy. But we're not. Only God is. God is full of justice. So his law insists upon it. This side of heaven, before Jesus comes back uh, to to fully wipe away injustice once and for all, he will not let the rich and the powerful get away with trampling on the rights of the vulnerable in our society. He won't stand for that. And he doesn't invite us to therefore come and question his character on these things. No, he invites us to join him in fighting for justice, in pursuing it for all. Which is one of the main reasons that we do our Christians Against Poverty Debt Center here at St. Joseph's. To liberate people, to free people from crippling debt, in slavery to crippling debt. That's one form of slavery in our culture. It's why a handful of members here in the congregation go and help each week up the hill at the uh, the local food bank. It's one of the reasons why uh, two members of our congregation adopted children in care last year. And it's why Christians have always been at the forefront of campaigning for social change. I mean, I don't know if you know the story of Wilbur, I Wilbur, can't even say him, Wilbur, William, not Wilbur, sorry, hopefully you know better than me, yeah, hopefully you can say, say him, William Wilberforce, I apologize, William, um, he'll returning in, in his grave, but he was one of the key players in the abolition, abolition of that transatlantic slave trade, wasn't he? And he really got what these verses were, were really about. He, he actually used them. read his story, he used these verses as his inspiration to sacrificially, at great personal cost to himself and his own ambitions, pursue social change for millions of slaves worldwide. It's an impi- inspiring story. If you've never read it, read it. Or, or if you're not a reader, get hold of the, uh, of the film. And to take action like that, we need God's heart. We need God's heart for justice. But we also need to get his heart for mercy, which is the third and final thing we're going to look at. God's people should reflect God's character in mercy. Look with me at the second half of chapter 22 over the page. Do you see God's heart of compassion for the vulnerable? It is everywhere, actually, in all three of these chapters. But verse 25 If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. Folks, don't go charging interest to people who are in and around the family of God. Lend to them freely. Verse 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Folks, don't profit from the widow and the orphan, the weak and the vulnerable, the defenseless, just because you can. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Folks, don't take advantage of a foreigner or a refugee or oppress them or or mistreat them in any, any way. Welcome them and take care of them, look after them. And the reason God's people were to do this is because they too were sojourners in Egypt. And that doesn't mean, hey, guys, you should know how it feels. No, it's more than that. It's much more. God is saying here, he's saying, listen, you were foreigners in Egypt, and yet I came in and I rescued you. That's the kind of God I am. I rescue people. I show mercy on people like that. I'm a God who shows mercy. And so reflect my character in everything you do and be people who show mercy to others. And this mercy, incredibly, it, it's not only to be extended to the vulnerable. According to First chapter 23 and verse 4, it is to be extended even to your enemy. As God says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Folks, it's a very small step, isn't it? From this expression of God's mercy to the one who said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And in both cases, the reason to do this, the reason to show mercy, is the same. It's so that God's people might be the children of their Father in heaven and reflect his character, which is always abundantly merciful. There's loads more that could be said here, but I'm I'm aware. I, I need to pull stumps and shut up. But do you see, as we begin to look under the surface of these laws, to try to search out God's character, I wonder if there really is anything to be embarrassed about here. Is there anything to be embarrassed about God's commitment to truth, his commitment to justice for all, his commitment to mercy? Once we see them for what they are, part of the unfolding revelation of God before he takes us to heaven and makes all things right, yes, written to a particular people in a particular time and a particular place, so we can't just lift them and, uh, and apply them wholesale to our lives today. But once we see them in their historical context, we can see the ga- character of God shining through them. And we too can learn from them and be equipped by them for every good work. So as we finish, here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to take a little moment, um, a minute, to think and pray this through for ourselves. Uh, how is god calling us to reflect his character of mercy of truth of justice this week this week think that through and let's be really specific let's think about particular places or particular people that we might have opportunities to do that with let's just take a take a minute of uh, a minute of silence to to pray that through let's pray Lord God, we thank you that you are a God of mercy. So we pray that you would be merciful to us and hear our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.